0: has a uh, signed picture of Dick Cavett on his toilet from a syphilis PSA?
1: From a syphilis PSA. uh, uh, PBS syphilis, uh, like, or venereal disease. Yeah. uh, Special broadcast in 1971 or something like that. What was the reaction
0: when he saw and signed
1: it? Well, that was a gift from Uh, John Hodgman, who I think bought that signed... Dick Cavett, uh, venereal disease photograph. Saw it at a memorabilia auction and bought it because because Hodgman is a weirdo. It's a good it's
0: a good present, but it's one of those things that I, I think would be better to to have the the little syphilis PSA picture and then to present it to Dick Cavett and see how he reacts to it.
1: Right. Uh, but, you know the thing about getting presents from Hodgman is that they are. It's a real mixed bag. The most recent <laughs> time I opened an envelope from him, it was a jar of, like, Hodgman brand mayonnaise hmm. that uh, that was obviously, like, left over from his Ragnarok preparations. And I was like, why are you sending me a jar of commemorative mayonnaise? That's not a thing. Wait, he...
0: Jokingly, or did he actually make a bomb shelter?
1: I don't think... I, I don't think if he did make a bomb shelter that I would be at liberty to reveal it. But, uh, but no, he was, um, I, I think when you jokingly make your act revolve around Ragnarok yeah. for over a year, it has to seep in. You have to start believing maybe it's a possibility that the Mayans were right and the world is ending.
0: I, I, like, I like the idea of having a, a,
1: a bomb shelter but only with things of your face on them. Right. Well, and the thing is, building a bomb shelter in Brooklyn... Yeah. Um, I'm afraid that when the when the apocalypse comes, Brooklyn will be a smoking crater 100 feet down that fills with fetid water.
0: Well, see, you're going to collapse into the subway, and that'll be the first thing that happens. Yeah, right? there's, not, there's, yeah.
1: No, there's no, like, oh, we built a bomb shelter in Brooklyn. It's like, no, you didn't. Yeah, I mean, a bomb shelter in Brooklyn would have to be a mile underground. We, um... When we were at,
0: not uh, uh, even said it. When we were at uh, NASA, um, we we had this last minute interview with a guy who, whose job it is to sort of be—he's the expert on uh, asteroid impact. Mm. Um, you know, so he's 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 kind of the cheerleader. He's the one who, who goes around telling people that we need to be constantly monitoring mo- monitoring these things, um, and somehow it's it it fell on him to become the end of the world expert oh sure so he turned into but but specifically the mayan apocalypse which which is kind of it which is an interesting thing and 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 i didn't even really think about it until we were having this conversation but um i don't know that i ever really realized you know when 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 the mayan apocalypse is happening what is going to cause the end of the world oh did he have a did he have a theory well his theory was that it was I mean that was his main thing, so he would be if nPR needed to call up a scientist, he would be i see a oh, I see,
1: yeah, what what would cause it? Well, I think what would cause it is a giant lizard comes to swallow <laughs> the world, right isn't that I mean, isn't that what the Mayans thought that a that an iguana swallows the earth? I don't know, maybe I'm confusing that with the Christian Bible. <laughs> Uh, but that's I, definitely how the Bible ends. <laughs> right? I, yeah. You know, I read most of the Bible, but I never got all the way to the end, and I just yeah. assumed that an iguana swallows, swallows the world at the you end. You got the, to the Book of lizard, though. That's, that's how all the great creation stories end. Something, something big, some big reptile swallows the world. Well, it starts on the back of a turtle and ends in the mouth of a lizard. Right. <laughs> um, how, how long have you been in this house for? I bought this house uh, five years ago with my, uh, my ill-gotten indie rock fortune. And uh, like most houses, it gives me a lot of satisfaction. Well, I mean, That's not to say that most houses give me a lot of satisfaction, but like when someone buys a house, mm. I think it's generally a pretty great feeling. You've accomplished something. Yeah, but then, you know, you immediately switch gears into, now I have to maintain this place. Now I have to continue to earn money in order to just keep this place alive. And I was coming after. I was coming out of years and years and years where I was basically sleeping in my car, and then now I had a house, and that was wonderful. I had a place to put my candlesticks and my and my fencing sabers and my uh, encyclopedias. But I also can no longer really put all that stuff in my car if I lose the house. So I had to keep working
0: yeah i mean th- th- that's kind of what I was going to ask you of me because certainly when I think of you, maybe the mythology of you but ev- everything I know about you that um you you know you you seem you seem like a, a, a traveler and sort of surprise, surprising to me that you have a, a nice house and a nice area
1: yeah well i I think that i well, as I was thinking about it as I was thinking about buying a house, I had to climb down out of the big tower I had built in my mind that buying a house was some kind of massive, massive turning point and life choice and statement. I mean, it, it is, though, isn't it? Well, except it, it is if you believe that, A, if you believe that money is real, and, B, if you think that life is, a, is, a, is like a trajectory that moves in a single, inevitable direction. And what I said to myself was, buying a house is the next thing that I'm doing. I am going to buy a house. That's the next thing I do. And if the house burns to the ground or if I decide 5 years from now I don't want to live in a house anymore, if I decide I want to buy a Jeep on Craigslist and drive it to Tierra del Fuego, then I will do that and that will be the next thing that I do. And the 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 concept that you that you know that becoming an adult is then buying a house and living it until you can afford a bigger house and then Getting a bigger house and raising a family, and then one day downsizing to a condo in Boca Raton—that is a—that's a trajectory I'm not on anyway. I never was. So, why you know why owning a house would suddenly like put me in it? It's just a—it's just a mental technology.
0: But you've got a house and, and you're you're raising a family. Can you still
1: uh, you know live in a car at some point? Absolutely. I feel like at some point when my daughter is old enough, we will literally buy a Jeep on Craigslist and drive it to Tierra del Fuego. And if we don't do that, it will only be because we are driving our Jeep to some other place. We decided Tierra del Fuego was a bad idea.
0: In in the sense of getting in a car, driving there, but still having
1: this be home base? Well, Seattle, I mean, I've been all over the world and have... uh, from London to the Bay, and everywhere I go, it's hammer yo hammer hit me hammer go hammer. Can you touch it? I have touched it. Mm. Uh, in contravention of what of like <laughs> conventional wisdom, I have touched it. <laughs> but the um, but a bing, the uh, the idea that I would one day live in a different city as my home has kind of has Kind of faded in the just simply because I've been to so many places, and in every case, I feel like Seattle is a is um is better, is nicer, really. It's then the, uh, all the than other than every other option. I mean, yeah. if I if if I were 23 years old, I would want to live in Berlin because I would be a 24 hour party person and. I would still think like maybe I was going to be a graffiti artist or maybe I was going to make banjo techno or whatever it is that young people are on about. And Berlin would feel like a vibrant place, but I have, the, I have the wherewithal to travel to Berlin anytime I want that energy. And then when I want to smell fresh air and pine trees and like be close enough to a juice bar that I can get juice without being too close to a juice bar... So that I have to feel like I'm part of a juice bar culture, I come back to Seattle. I mean, Seattle is like it's a medium-sized city in a temperate climate, in a very polite corner of the world. And why wouldn't you have that be your house? So, so how do, how how is how is the house
0: impacted? You know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just kind of I'm kind of wondering, I guess, what what you
1: what you you know what you do in a day. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Good question. Well, at a certain point, uh, maybe half a dozen years ago, I realized that I that that part of my struggle in going through life was that I was an introvert. You know, I was an extroverted introvert. I enjoyed very much being in front of a crowd of people, but I did not take my energy from other people. And that and the struggle of of realizing that, I think, as a culture, we have. We have a lot more understanding that introverts are a thing now than we did even ten years ago, but my whole life it was assumed that I was an extrovert because I was because I was talkative and because I was a performer you can get out in front of a group of people and play I, love, music. I love it I love it I love to be a performer and I love to talk to interesting people but then I want those people to pack up and go away and I want to be alone that's where I get that's where I where I really feel the most myself. It's, it's, it's got to be hard being, being.
0: Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm the same way to a, a degree, which is kind of what makes New York a hard place to live in right. uh, a lot of the time You never get alone there. Yeah, you, you, on any given street at any given time. But uh, man, how, how about playing a boat? You've done these boat shows, you've done cruises and stuff. I mean, you, you, you can't you'd have to jump off the ship.
1: Well, except that one of the great things about being a musician is there is always a hotel room at the end of the path, you know, and on the on, playing on the Jonathan Colton cruise, I just go back to my, ho- my room and close the door. I mean, I don't need to be alone. It's not like an existential aloneness where I need to be in a cave in the mountains. I just need to be away where people can't come up and stick their pinky up my nose and say, I'm your biggest fan and that entitles me to stick my pinky up your nose or whatever. Uh, because you'd be surprised the number of fans that want to do that, but what it turned out when I bought a house what 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 happened was i finally had i finally was not answerable to anybody I finally had my own space where I was away and it turned a little bit uh it it got a little pathological because being forced to interact with other people was what gave me the frission to be a creator of things mm. and a and a member of society being ex- being excluded from other people through the through my wealth my relative wealth you know money bought me the ability to keep people out you have a nice white picket fence. I have out, a white picket yeah. fence, and you cannot get through it without risking triggering a boop, mm-hmm. booby trap, one of the many booby traps I have out front. Uh, but what that meant was that sometimes five or six days would go by, and I wouldn't go outside. I wouldn't have an interaction with another person, and then I would be alone with hmm. the howling demon dogs that live just beneath the surface of my brain. And that ended up not being healthy. I need, I need, even though I feel like I don't like... Sustained interaction with other people, I do need regular daily contact but you've got i mean you've got a family
0: i here. do is that does, is do you exclude that from the equation
1: well no i have I also have the technology to keep my family in a pen where they do not have access to me. I have large uh, it, you, you didn't tour the whole back forty here, mm. but I have large family pens in the <laughs> back mm-hmm. um, and uh, so I mean, I see them at feeding time obviously. Mm. But yeah the the, chal- the the challenge of having a family is that I never loved anything like I love my daughter and so now what do you do I'd sp- I've spent my whole life feeling like um loving things was uh was a luxury I couldn't afford and now I do love a thing that that really is affecting my choices on a daily basis but I don't tire of her she doesn't uh she doesn't intrude on my mind like, you know, most people do.
0: do you, you know, I guess based on the, the trajectory that we've been going on in the conversation, it, it, it seems like, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe the great novel is, is, is next or, you know, isolating <laughs> yourself in a room. Uh, you know, there's a difference between, obviously, writing songs and playing with them in a band and playing in front of people and then holding yourself up in a place for a year and trying to write a book.
1: Yeah, and I don't know, I don't know. Yeah, there. Were, certainly, reading novels was a huge part of my self education. That started when I was eight, and continued until I was thirty-five, where reading novels was was the way I gave myself a moral education. Reading novels and reading like, uh, I guess. Uh, people writing about morality but but novels are where you can explore philosophical ideas in a in a like a palatable place and then i tired of novels like profoundly tired of hmm. them and did and i made the i made the gear change that seems to happen to all men in middle age where they just start reading about the civil war you know they just start reading books about war and um even novels about war were tiring i just i just i don't have i don't have cable so i can't watch the hitler channel but i i would be watching it if if i had tv i would just be sitting and watching like you know tank technologies of the third reich oh that seems interesting that seems better than reading like a a a novel about the manners of 18th century france like so as far as writing a novel i sit and dream up scenarios all day but what would well, well, why does the world need a novel from me i don't think it does it i do feel a responsibility to share what i've learned with with people beyond you know beyond just share what i've learned with my with my progeny but share what i've learned with with the with a larger group of people that are interested, and it seems that there are people interested. Um, this is
0: where the podcast comes in.
1: It's, uh, the podcast was was uh, was an expression was a was a place where I was finally able to just just share my interest in general knowledge with people who also had an interest in general knowledge, and general knowledge that is not just a just a compendium of facts, but general knowledge that is. Uh, the, uh, you know my attempt to apply facts and and uh, ap- apply curiosity to living living a moral or a gratifying life. people are interested in that it 's why we go to school it 's why we go to church. people want to hear uh, others the the experience of others trying to navigate the world and make sense of it and make it and and make it good
0: does is I mean is that the role is that the role music plays for you too? Is it I mean obviously it's more of an abstract expression?
1: Well, it always was. I mean music can be the most powerful form of ministry to people. It can also be I mean I think most musicians don't think of it that way because the music does the heavy lifting. You can make a great sounding rhythm track and then just talk about squeezing a lemon until the juice runs down your leg over the top of it but the but the music the track itself is doing the the large share of communicating to, other to be clear we're talking about led zeppelin we, we are in say, that instance talking about led zeppelin ripping off muddy waters sure. or whatever but but uh, the, the the music is helping people feel like everything's going to be okay um what you know indie rock took indie rock was uh was a genre that kind of took from the Dylan Leonard Cohen school of like uh, obtuseness but also a more direct form of ministry or a more, more direct form of like lyrical reaching out in addition to musical reaching out and in that sense, I mean, I don't, think, I don't think indie rock is going to be remembered really as a, as a genre that had a lot of importance in the mm. grand scheme of things. But, but what separated us was that a lot of us were trying to say meaningful things in the words too. Um, and, and so if you, if you, in those rare instances where you have meaningful words and really powerful music, I think a song can do the work of of any of the greatest works of art. You know, a great song can transform somebody as much as anything, as much as a great play or a great painting.
0: Again, again, like knowing what I know about you and and your history, you know, if I had to project a musical genre onto you, it probably would be... Something more in line with country music. I mean, hmm. is that a little too on the nose for you?
1: Well, there's always, I am, I'm always, um, as a writer, much more metaphorical than country ever lets itself be. Because country is, has this, uh, has, a, projects a self image of direct tonk. Mm-hmm. And so, to whatever degree they're addressing real human concerns, on the surface of it, it's like straight talk from one straight-talking man to another, or straight talk right to like the heart of the issue. And in my case, I am not about straight talk. I am about um, I'm about using economical language to describe a real, hopefully, a broad slice of the. Of the pie of any given day. Uh,
0: well, I, I guess I guess a question I would ask then is, you know, if, if 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 the reason why you're writing this is is to to get to to get something across to you know to, to get a to get a, a a specific point across to somebody, isn't that doesn't that muddy the waters a little bit when when you start speaking in metaphor? Because obviously, everyone's going to take something very different away from
1: it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and, and it isn't that I'm trying to get something specific across. It is, I mean the the specificity. In art is, is always just like you bring your problem, whatever it is, into this function machine of looking at a painting or listening to a song or, or watching a play. You bring your specific problem in, that function machine of art gives you some solution that, you, that only you know. Because your response to it is very is individual. It's very unique. But the art itself is can be very general. You know, uh, the insights that we're looking for are very seldom somebody listening to our problem and saying, "Here's what you need to do." The insights we're looking for are those those moments of epiphany where you are looking at two birds fighting over a chicken bone and you go, oh, "That's it." Two birds fighting over a chicken bone. That solves my marriage problem. You know, it is, it, metaphor is where we actually find personal solutions because our, our own minds are always teasing this jumble of ideas and this jumble of like our, our, what we have been taught and how our minds work. The, 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 what unlocks the puzzle is never, is never a key. It's always a code as 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 somebody who you know as you said before
0: as somebody who 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 does like interacting with people and obviously you'll, you'll throw yourself into that you know whether it's like a cruise or a rock show or something like that is there is there value to you in people taking their own interpretations of of these songs that you've written and feeding them back to you telling telling you you know how what, what their interpretations and how they've affected their lives
1: well it's always i mean the, the... As somebody who has interacted with a lot of people over the years and, and read a lot of books of, that, are, uh, that are basically just people describing their path, it's astonishing how few new narratives there are. Everybody's got the same problems. All around the world, we all have the same problems. Why? How do I find love? Why doesn't the person that I love love me back? And why does my life seem so hard when everybody else's life seems so easy? If there if there is a reason that we have religion, it is because each of us carries around a feeling that our lives are hard and everyone else's is easy. And the fact is that everybody's life is hard. Everybody's life really is equally hard. And when I say that to people, they're always forwarding me Tumblers that have pictures of rich kids flying in Learjets <laughs> and, and spilling drinks on each other and getting boob jobs. And this is like a commentary to me, from people like, uh, everybody doesn't have it hard. Look at these rich kids. They don't have it hard. And the answer to that is, like, plain. Those rich kids are as miserable as anyone who ever lived. Like, those mis- rich kids are miserable. It's, it's weird to me that that would be the
0: tact, because, I, you know, if, if I heard something like that and I wanted to respond to it, I feel like I would go in the opposite direction and, and show you a picture of a starving child in Africa.
1: Well, yeah, but... but, And, and this is, you know, this, this is... Uh, kind of hard, it's hard for for some people to hear but the reality is that people who are starving and living in in incredibly disadvantaged situations are also capable of as much great joy as anybody in the world and that, uh, I mean obviously a child that is born into extreme poverty and never ever has an opportunity to even like have a decent meal and dies at the age of three, it's, it's hard to say that that child has as much possibility to have joy in its life as Donald Trump does. But I would argue that most people in the world experience equal amounts, really, of joy and pain um, on, on a kind of wide, wide distribution. Donald Trump is a miserable son of a bitch, and every day of his life is a living hell. And there are people living in abject poverty who have music and love, and their lives are as full and as brimming over with what is truly valuable about being alive as anyone on the earth. It isn't a question of, of money. It isn't a question of leisure. It is a question of somehow a combination of love and music, and if you have just enough food and enough clean water it it sounds like what you're saying is it isn't that everybody has the same level of
0: joy and pain, but that everybody's capable of the same level of joy and pain
1: well right, and it is and it is utterly disconnected from the things that we that we uh, from the the causal relationships that we like to attach to it you don't need. More leisure to be free, you know you need mental freedom, you need freedom from mental slavery, none but ourselves can free our minds go on <laughs> well, have no fear from mm-hmm. atomic energy yep. because none of them can stop at the time mm-hmm. How long have they killed our prophets while we stand aside and look so you're saying that you're saying that your music is like a redemption song basically redemption redemption is the is the theme. My, my, my feeling is that the stories that people tell me when they come up to me and say, your music saved my life. Uh, Your song literally. Yeah. Because this is the relationship people have to music. You know, I was in the depths of despair and I heard your song that you wrote about some girl, but hearing it at the, at this particular moment in my life, actually like, like, kept me going that little bit.
0: I was walking through an airport. I heard Elliot Smith. Everything was great from right. that on.
1: You went to baggage claim with <laughs> a lighter heart. Yeah. I mean, I wrote a song about a guy who was in a coma but, could, but still had sense, uh, still had, had his senses, called It'll Be a Breeze. And I got a, an email from a fan in Canada whose brother was in a horrific fire and was in a coma and they were listening to it'll be a breeze every day on repeat during the hour long drive they had to make to the hospital to visit their brother every day who was in a coma and the song it was the most uh the most incredible like example of a song literally being useful to someone who is in that situation um and the and the brother came out of the coma and is now alive and thriving that is very unusual that you write a song about somebody in a coma and someone really is able to apply it and i think that they were listening to this song without fully understanding that it was about somebody in a coma until we started having an email exchange and i explained yeah that's actually what it is about you were you it was meant as a metaphor (laughs) and you are actually you have found a situation you are the one person in the world who this is no longer a metaphor for them, um, but that song has helped a lot of people. Uh, they they report to me uh, using it also just as a metaphor for being in an emotional yeah. coma. Um, so, th- in large part, I feel like the 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 range of human capacity is although it seems to us very broad it's actually pretty truncated it's pretty narrow for there to be for it to be possible that someone survives the holocaust and goes on to live to be 85 years old in israel and live in an apartment complex side by side with someone who has never had a, a has never had a problem greater than a hangnail in their whole lives, and that these two people would have anything to say to each other or that they could even be neighbors and friends and live in the world together. It is evidence, I think, that our capacities for pain and pleasure are are pretty... are uh, Limited? Are, Limiting? Are pretty limited by our yeah. own capacity. If you can survive a genocide and be friends with someone who has never suffered at all. We really don't we're not that different from each other and the worst pain we can imagine and the worst and the best pleasure really aren't separated by that tremendous of a gulf.
0: These are like real-world metaphors for each other, like actual experiences in your life being metaphors for other things you can experience.
1: Yeah, you you see all the time people who get broken up with by someone they've been dating for a year and a half. And they feel like that is enough reason to kill themselves. That they cannot survive another day having been broken up with by somebody that they've known a year. And they literally kill themselves. And then you see someone who survived in a concentration camp and watched their entire family murdered. And then they they go on and they live they live more or less like gratifying lives to the age of 90. Who is to say which is the... How can you say that being broken up with is less of a trauma than being put in a concentration camp? You really can't. Well, some people are, aren't some people just stronger than other people? I don't know. Are they? Or is being broken up with really actually maybe one of the worst things that can happen in life? Like being broken up with by somebody that you love is maybe one of the worst experiences a human being can have even worse than than seeing your family killed like you 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 can't really say because the I guess the, you could talk to somebody who's been through both of those things. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and and you know and they may say like yeah, the holocaust was awful and the worst actually the worst thing that happened to me in my whole life was my divorce. Human beings are are not um machines. And emotions are not... You cannot act upon emotion with reason. Emotions and reason, like, function side by side and are, in a lot of ways, oppositional. But you cannot use reason to persuade emotion.
0: What would you say is more... Um, and, you know, it's, w- what keeps you going in terms of you know writing music more? Is it is it um, kind of doing it for yourself? Doing it because you have to do it? Doing it for catharsis? Or realizing the way what happens when it goes out into the world and how it how it affects people?
1: Well, frankly, none of the above. Mm. I I I struggle now with why I. I struggle a lot on a daily basis with why I am writing, why I would write. Because in at a general level I care about humanity. As that as that becomes more and more specific, I kind of care less and less. Like I don't particularly care about any vill- any one village in India getting clean water. There are pe- plenty of people on the on the earth who feel like if they can provide clean water technology to one more village in India, their lives will have had meaning and have been justified. And I don't, I don't see, when I look at my own life, I don't see providing clean water to a village in India as being a justification or a, or a, a thing I'm motivated. You say, you say that say, in a way
0: that, you know, like if I could just own one more car, then, then I would be happier.
1: Well, it, 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 it is a question of like alleviating suffering for your fellows is a prime motivation for a lot of people. I mean, ma- just making money and being richer is a prime motivation for a lot of people. But those people who who, uh, who, don't, who aren't just living life to enrich themselves, a lot of them are living life to enrich themselves with, a, with this feeling of accomplishment that they have helped other people. And, so being altruistic for selfish reasons? Well, who knows why we are altruistic? It's one of the big questions about, about being human beings. Why do we help each other? Are we doing it because we are genetically programmed to, to keep the species alive in a way that, that uh, we would even sacrifice ourselves or our own families in order to keep our, our village happy or healthy? Um, what, 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 are the, what are our motivations? Like altruism is a thing that I am just as suspicious of as I am narcissism because I've met a lot of really altruistic people who were as narcissistic as anybody and intolerable, intolerable people who are out there helping others. Um, when I look at myself, I don't know what my purpose is in life and my my attempts to alleviate other people's suffering through art have been successful but i don't feel that that, is, that that justifies me and i don't know what's next so when i sit down to write unfortunately all these questions are in my mind and i say why am i writing this song to help some kid who doesn't know how to talk to girls no to help somebody who's just been through a, a terrible divorce? I don't know. Do I really care about that person? I'm not just... I'm no longer unburdening myself and feeling a great relief at finally getting it off my chest.
0: Do, 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 you, do you need to continually justify yourself or is, is, is it enough to just go on living and, you know, living an okay life?
1: If I were able to have it be enough to just go on living... I would be a much happier person. I mean, there are plenty of people, even good friends of mine, whose whole justification is just to be able to get on that jet ski on Saturday, you know? I mean, I grew up in Alaska where your justification is that you go out on the weekends and fire up a motorized vehicle of some kind and tear ass around. And then you come back and you're like, woo, that was amazing, let's get drunk. Mm. And then, on Monday morning, it all seems worth it, and for me, that was never the case now at at this age, I should probably have worked it out. I should probably have worked out what i 'm doing it for enough that i don't every day wake up and say, "Why am I doing this again? Why am I getting up and making breakfast for myself i i i was, <laughs> I, was
0: having a, I was having a conversation with 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 my uh, my mother not too long ago and um, you know, it's, it's her prime directive to make sure that I'm happy, right? She you know right. she feels like it in her life she just and, wants you to eat, eat, eat. Yeah, and 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 she and she asked me, you know, uh, you know, are you happy with how your life is? And I said something along the lines of, you know, I I, I don't feel like I'm ever going to be fully happy, and I and I think that's okay, and I think that's what keeps me going is just a, a continued perpetual dissatisfaction with right. myself. I mean, do, do you feel like that's
1: the case that you're constantly trying to better things and that's keeping you moving forward. Yeah, and I but the problem is that at a, at the age of 44, I have arrived at a understanding that that is also a game that that being fueled by dissatisfaction is a never-ending tail chasing and that that isn't fun anymore that waking up in the morning and being like ah oh, i just need to if i just had this one improvement in this one aspect of my life that things that that happiness would would descend on me like a pink cloud and realizing like that i've been do i've been playing that game with myself for 25 years there is no one thing that needs to change what if happiness is possible it is possible by virtue of me having a mental revolution that Might come as a result of embracing meditation or hot yoga or veganism or, uh, you know, or something as simple as setting a goal and then setting another goal and not thinking about anything other than that goal. But you're doing I mean you're doing something right and, and you must you must be happy with,
0: with some some aspect of your You'll be surprised. Well I, what I was gonna say is I mean wouldn't it wouldn't it be easier to just uh, I mean, you know, most people just have jobs. Isn't that an easier
1: way to go? Well, it's easier if you aren't if you are not like a quester. Yeah. You know, and I really do think that there are some genetic predispositions that some people are pushed out of the village. Um, otherwise, we would not have colonized the world. We would all still be living in a really, really big village somewhere in Nigeria. So there are always people that are being pushed out, and not being, not always being pushed out by others, but like venturing out. And we're, we live now in a world where you can't just venture out into the land because we have colonized the world. You, it would make no sense for me to go to Vladivostok, and go out into the woods because it's like, yeah, we're I'm not helping. I mean you're yeah, you're colonizing it for yourself in a way. Yeah. And, right. um, I wouldn't be helping people. Yeah. So and and I think that is that is the motivation when you leave the village is you're you're you are venturing out with the idea that you're gonna come back with some pelts, sure or you're gonna come Spices. back with clean water or spice. Yeah. Right. And so so now I have this genetic predisposition to venture out. And I, and doing that in the physical realm isn't really needed, so I am one of the one of that cast of people that is trying to venture out in whatever way I can and bring back whatever i whatever I find um, and whether or not that's needed is like up to the village to decide. But I am compelled. Yeah.
0: Well, let's end this on something happy. What what makes you? (laughs) Let let me just just ask you, what makes you? What what makes you happy?
1: You know, like I guess happiness is not a is not a thing that I seek. It's great though. Being happy is great, right? Being happy is great, and it happens in it happens in short bursts Mm -hmm. for me. You know, like playing with my daughter makes me happy. Finding new things, discovering new things, even just like lifting up a rock and and seeing the bugs that live under it, mm-hmm. that makes me happy.
0: We're talking, you know, I was, I was thinking about this earlier. This idea of, um, like you said, that two people from two totally different parts can be, um, can you know, have a conversation and, and have things in common. I mean, that's
1: that's a great thing, right? It's amazing, and and other people do make me happy, despite, despite feeling. Uh, a lot of pressure being around other people. You know, I, I've, I've traveled a lot in foreign countries and I get asked all the time whether I have learned another language. And I never found it necessary because, again, there aren't that many things to say to one another that we don't already know. And if there's a, if there's a person standing next to you who doesn't speak your language, the things they need to communicate to you are self-evident and you can have a pretty fantastic conversation or if they're in, you know, physical pain they can express that. Yeah, but even if I mean I have spent I've spent many, many happy hours sitting on a log with somebody where we have no language in common, just enjoying being human beings with each other because there's really not that much it's not that confusing. You sit next to each other and you go uh, buh, buh, buh. and you point at something, and they go, ha, ha, ha. and you go, yeah, ba, da, ba, da. and you are talking. You really are. Yeah. Language gets in, in between us. I remember I was in Turkey one time, and I, I stopped a guy on the street. I wanted to ask directions. And I said, you know, in this kind of like international patois, like, where is the center? Where is the centrum of the city? And he was a student. You could tell he was a 24-year-old student. He had long hair. And he said, I am sorry, I do not speak English. And I said, that's no problem. I'm just trying to find my way to the center, the center. <laughs> and he was f- very frustrated. He said, I do not speak English, I'm sorry. And I said, right, I get it. And I, had a, I picked up a stick and I drew like, on, in the dirt, like, center, the centrum. That is like Centrum. Everybody in the world knows Centrum. I don't, it, Chi, the Chinese know Centrum, and he is like so mad at me that he is—he's so frustrated that he doesn't speak English. He's trying to communicate to me that he doesn't speak English, and I am drawing something in the <laughs> dirt with a stick. Speaking English is not essential to this. And his problem was that that he thought that our language barrier was insurmountable, and I'd been speaking to people for years with no common language. And language barrier isn't a problem if you are just if you're not hung up. And this guy was so worried about words that he couldn't get the innocent, the simplicity of what I was asking. I wonder if he wasn't
0: almost proud that he didn't speak English. He was
1: very proud of it, and he was and, it, and he was he was uh, he was so insistent that he didn't yeah. as a as a form of like resistance to to English being this. Uh, This sweeping colonizing, yeah, Yeah, colonizing plague. And I was like, "Your, you know, your politics and your Che Guevara T-shirt are not important to me right now. I am trying to find the fucking center of your town." And you know, and we parted ways with no information having been exchanged. He doesn't speak English, but he probably shops at Hot Topic. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't speak English, (laughs) but he but he loves Led Zeppelin like everybody does, (laughs) or he loves ABBA. Mm -hmm. You know, so. So, the, so exchanges with other people give me tremendous gratification. I feel great when I, you know even this conversation is is a is like a thing that makes my day, that gives my day shape and hmm. and meaning. Um,
0: and and you're and you're kind of again coming back to where we started. You're blocking that off in in a sense by building this house around yourself.
1: Yeah, when I am here at this house. You had to come here. You mm-hmm. had to batter down my door, yeah. basically, with your battering ram of incessant emails. And I should mention that you have a
0: there's an, a little umbrella rack that's full of weaponry next to the there's door.
1: A we- there's an umbrella rack full of uh, full of like um, swords and guns and staffs. <laughs> there's a staff of might over there. There's a- you shall not pass. That's right. But 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 having you here, then it you know it. it, it it energizes me. It enlivens me in a way that, so having a house yeah. is a mixed bag. It energizes you to, you know, talking, talk, just
0: talking to people in general. It energizes you to go write a song, or what do you do with that energy?
1: It does. It, yeah. and I think it is its own. It is its own recapitulating energy. It energizes you to think more about what you're saying, and it energizes me to go talk to more people and. Yeah, and and believe that conversation is a way of solving problems as much as anything. I like you know one one of the things you said on
0: on one of your shows recently. I think that really sort of I don't know if affected me is the right word, but I think you know really uh, was was resident was this idea of you know I I, I I'll, I'll go see a movie that I really like, or I'll go to a rock show that I really like, and and you know on the train ride home I'm really amped up to go do something creative, and by the time I get there it's it's dissipated.
1: Yeah, but I think I think that. I think that feeling plants a little seed in you that after you collect a few, you do, Mm. you do end up making things and you can't maybe tie it exactly to one concert, but you know, living in a world where creativity is valued is its own inspiration. I mean, I imagine, uh, there are plenty of people out there going from jet ski to jet ski. Who <laughs> it never occurs to them to make something. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Thanks so much. Oh yeah. You bet. <laughs>
0: I was waiting for the logical ending, and it came. <laughs> John Roderick, there of uh, mm-hmm. the Long Winters. Uh, Formerly of uh, Harvey Danger, now of Roderick on the line. Which, uh, if you liked what you heard on the podcast today, it's kind of a a far more delightful weekly version of those sorts of conversations. Uh, You can catch that with uh, Merlin Man. Of you look nice today. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks, of course, to uh, to John for agreeing to do this. Uh, he actually uh, welcomed us to to his home with open arms, um, and uh, his house is kind of uh, I, I guess you would say the the closest thing to the physical manifestation of John Roddick's personality you could possibly imagine. Uh, when you walk in, there's a, an umbrella stand full of uh, different weaponry. So don't uh, don't ever visit his home uh, uninvited. Uh, he's got a, a Grand piano covered in uh, dozens upon dozens of candlesticks. Uh, really, just uh, just a sort of a fantastic setting in which uh, in which to speak to to Mister Roderick. Um, also, oh, also when we were out in Seattle, uh, he recommended this place. Uh, this place called Randy's, which is a uh, a diner over by uh, Boeing. Um, if you've ever been to Seattle, you know that Boeing's got a got a huge presence there. That's where they build all the planes. Um, and a lot of uh, a lot of retired. Uh, pilots, mechanics, things like that uh, hang out at this awesome restaurant full of, uh, full of model planes. There you go. If, uh, John Roddick ever tells you to eat at a place, you should definitely eat at a place. Oh, although I should say that the, uh, the, the chicken salad left uh, a little something desired. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, you can—we've uh, got a Tumblr. You can follow us on Tumblr. It's r i y l cast dot uh, Shoot us an email: r i y l cast uh, at uh, at uh, gmail uh, Thanks as always to Geneva for kind of singing together, and uh, thanks as always to Fox Brown for uh, for making that logo. Um, hopefully, some more of these things soon, in the near future. Stick around. Stay tuned.